Welcome, welcome to Freaked Out with your co-hosts, Liz and Landon. What's up, everybody? Today, we are going back in time, and we're going to be going to the year of 1948, and we're heading to Adelaide, South Australia. This is probably one of the oldest cases that we have done thus far on the podcast. So how do you feel about that? Normally, I would shut down a case like this very quickly. However, I do believe that this man is still roaming around in the afterlife and can connect with him. Now, with that being said, it may be difficult, but we're going to do our absolute best today. All right, well, let's go. The Somerton man was an unidentified man whose body was found on December 1st of 1948 on the beach at Somerton Park. It was a suburb of Adelaide, South Australia. The case is also known after the Persian phrase to Mamshud, meaning is over or is finished, which was printed on a scrap of paper found months later in the fob pocket of the man's trousers. Now, the scrap had been torn from the final page of a copy of Rubiat of Omar Kiem, authored by 12th century poet Omar Kiem. Following a public appeal by police, the book from which the page had been torn from was actually located. And on the inside back cover, detectives read through indentations left from previous handwriting, a local telephone number, another unidentified number, and a text that resembled a coded message. The text has not been deciphered or interpreted in the way to satisfy authorities on this case. Since the early stages of the police investigation, the case has been considered one of Australia's most profound mysteries. There has been intense speculation ever since regarding the identity of the victim, the cause of his death, and the events leading up to it. Now, public interest in this case remains significant for several reasons. The death occurred at the time of heightened international tension following the beginning of the Cold War and the apparent involvement of a secret code and possibly a use of an undetectable poison and the inability or unwillingness of authorities to identify the dead man. On December 1st, 1948, at 6.30 a.m., the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Beach. The man was found lying in the sand across from the crippled children's home, which was on the corner of Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. I know it's very unusual for, you know, a home to be called crippled children's home, but that was the proper name back then. Obviously, it's been changed. Now, he was laying back with his head resting against the seawall and with his legs extended and with his feet crossed. It was believed that the man had died while sleeping. Now, an unlit cigarette was on the right collar of his coat. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a narrow aluminum comb that had been manufactured in the USA. Not like they had, you know, Amazon back then. Also found a half-empty pack of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet 
which did contain seven cigarettes, but they were all different brands. And a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. Now, he had quite a bit of stuff in his pockets. He sure did. Witnesses who came forward said that on the evening of November 30th, they had seen an individual resembling the dead man laying on his back in the same spot where the corpse was later found. A couple who saw him at around 7 p.m. noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest and then dropped it down limply. Now, another couple said they saw him from 7.30 p.m. to 8, during in which the time the streetlights had come on, recounting that they did not see him move during the half an hour in which he was in view, although they did have the impression that his position had been changed. Although the couple commented between themselves that it was odd that he was not reacting to the mosquitoes, they had thought it more likely that he was drunk or asleep and thus did not investigate any further. Now, one of the witnesses told the police she observed a man looking down at the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led into the beach. Witness said that the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. Another witness came forward in 1959 and reported to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. According to pathologists, the man was of a Britisher appearance and thought to be about 40 to 45 years old, and he was also considered to be in top physical condition. He was 5 foot 11 with gray eyes, fair to ginger-colored hair, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes, and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed some sort of ballet. He was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks with shoes, the brown knitted pullover, and fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of what reportedly belonged to American tailoring. All labels on his clothes had been removed, and he was without a hat, which was unusual for 1948, or a wallet. He was clean-shaven, and carried no identification, which led police to believe that he had committed suicide. Now, finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person. An autopsy was conducted, and the pathologist estimated the time of death at around 2 a.m. on December 1st. The heart was of a normal size in every way. The stomach was deeply congested. There was blood mixed in with food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times the normal size, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and other congestion in the brain. Autopsy also shows that the man's last meal was a pasty, eaten about three or four hours before death but tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. The pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. 
The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Although poisoning remains the prime suspicion, the pasty was not believed to be the source. Other than that, the coroner was unable to reach a conclusion as to the man's identity, cause of death, or whether the man seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of the 30th was the same man, as no one has seemed to have seen his face at that time. The body was then embalmed on the 10th of December of 1948 after the police were unable to get a positive identification. The police said that this was the first time that they knew that such action was needed. On January 14, 1949, staff at the Adelaide Railroad Station discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, which had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on the 30th of November, 1948. It was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. In the suitcase, there was red checkered dressing gown, a size 7 red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a large brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush as used by a third officer on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. Also in the suitcase was a thread card of Barber brand orange wax Theof, an unusual type not available in Australia. It is the same that is used to repair the lining in the pocket of the trousers of the man that was wearing them. All identification marks on the clothes had been removed, but police found the name T. Keen on a tie. Keen on a laundry bag and Keen on a singlet along with three dry cleaning marks 1171-7-4393-7 and 3053-7. Police believe that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked these three items or purposely left them knowing that Keen was not the dead man's name with wartime rationing still enforced clothing was difficult to acquire at the time although it was very common practice to use name tags it was also common when buying secondhand clothes to remove the tags of the previous owner what was unusual was that there was no spare socks found in the case no correspondence and the police found pencils and unused letter stationery a search concluded that no T. Keen was missing in any English-speaking country. A nationwide circulation of the dry-cleaning marks also proved fruitless. All that could be found from the suitcase was that the front gusset and feather stitching on the coat found in the case indicated it was manufactured in the United States. The coat had not been imported, indicating the man had been to America or bought it from someone of a similar size who had been. There are so many theories on this case, but the two theories that I think are most accurate we will discuss. First one being spy theories. There has been a persistent speculation that the dead man was a spy due to the circumstances and historical content of his death. At least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to the spies. 
And the other connection is Jessica Thompson connection. Prosper Thompson died in 1995 and Jessica Thompson died in 2007. Now, in November of 2013, three of their relatives gave interviews to Channel 9, Current Affairs Program, 60 Minutes. So Kate Thompson, the daughter of Jessica and Prosper Thompson, said that her mother was the woman interviewed by the police and that her mother had told her she had lied to them. Jessica did know the identity of the Summerton man and his identity was also known to a level higher than the police force. She suggested that her mother and the Summerton man may have both been spies, noting that Jessica Thompson taught English to migrants, was interested in communism, and could speak Russian, although she would not disclose to Kate where she had learned it or why. Roma Egan, the widow of Jessica Thompson's son Robin, Robin and Rama's daughter, Rachel, also appeared on 60 Minutes. They suggested that the Summerton man was Robin's father, therefore Rachel's grandfather. Kate Thompson opposed the exhumation as being disrespectful to her brother. Now, when it comes to an update to the story, there was a recent identification made in July of 26, 2022 at the Adelaide University. Professor Derek Abbott claimed that he had identified the man as Carl, a.k.a. Charles Webb, an electrical engineer and an instrument maker born in 1905. And they based this on genetic genealogy from DNA of the man's hair. Well, do you believe that to be him? I do. I feel that it is Charlie Webb. But what I'm also feeling is that He is much more than just an electrical engineer and an instrument maker. I do feel like he's also a spy, but there's no records of it, but there also wouldn't be. But I feel like he was one and I feel like the electrical engineer and the instrument maker is basically the mask. But in reality, he was a spy. All right. Well, let's start from the beginning and work our way down to the end. A romantic story, actually, with a tragic ending, is what I'm being told. Let's start from the absolute beginning. So I do believe, although this person was genuinely identified to be Charles Webb, I feel like he's actually an American spy, but came over to Australia to pose as not American, which is why they were not able to find any sort of dental records based upon, you know, their searches. Now, he did work for the feds. He was a government official with some massive Keanu Reeves type of moves. He was a fighter. I see that he killed people quietly and often, and he was really good at it. He had a really good outstanding record, which is why he was sent to Australia to begin with. Obviously, we didn't have cell phones back then or the Internet or anything along those lines. So they had to rely on coded messages and on the mail. Well, makes sense to me. What was he doing in Australia? I feel like he was being an informant for another rival group of spies in relation to the Cold War to get information and intel just in case the USA needed to prepare for any sort of attacks. I don't necessarily feel like this happened only in the USA or Australia. I feel like they did this in many different countries where they would send people to other countries to pretend to be from that country so that they can get intel, so that they can get ahead of any sort of war that may transpire. 
I don't know all the ins and outs exactly or what kind of war or concerns they were afraid of. But what I do know at the time back then, we're basically extremely controlled. Everyone was suspicious of everyone else. He explained to me that he was told no matter what happens, let's say he gets murdered, they would pull the plug and leave him be. They will not identify him. They will not bring him back. Of course, because that would blow his cover. And of course, the fact that there's somebody trying to be a spy. Oh, yeah. And from what I gather, he had been there quite a while. A few years at the very least. He shows me that in America, he had a wife and two sons. He left his wife and two sons at a very young age. He told his family he'd be back and never walked through that front door again. I feel like the family assumed that he just left. Now, once he got to Australia, he actually ended up falling in love. He shows me he wasn't really in love with his American wife. It was more of like a cordial agreement. He did love his children, although he definitely feels awful that he wasn't there for them. And they also felt abandoned their entire lives. He shows me that he and this woman had met in a very unusual way. Something to do with turtles by the water. I'm not exactly sure, but he's fascinated with turtles. And she also happened to be there at the same time. She found him rather charming. Even though she had her own family, she pretended that she did not. Why did she do that? For many, many reasons, which I'm going to give below. It's a good thing that this happened so long ago because this day and age, I would be blowing all this information out of the water. And I'm pretty sure somebody would have come and found me and, you know, shot me in the head because this is like top secret shit. From what she's telling me as well, by the way, she's with him, that she also worked for an institution of spies. I think it was actually called that, the institution of spies. She didn't necessarily have any sort of involvement in killing people per se or silencing people. But she was definitely someone who kept her eyes and ears open and would transmit information. I also feel like her father or someone in her family also had some sort of military slash spy background, which is how I feel like she got involved in it. But she definitely had a double life. Now, with that being said, she also had to portray herself as a mother to her children and being a wife. She did not suspect anything when it came to Charlie. In fact, she found him extremely charming and elegant and she really loved him a lot. And the two of them had a, an extremely romantic 48 hours with just the two of them, probably six to eight months prior to his death. So they're together now. Kinda, yeah, yeah. I'll explain a bit. <laughs> the two of them connected within an hour of meeting each other, made love, and she definitely got pregnant. I don't necessarily know if it was the same time she got pregnant. She shows me that her baby was definitely his child. It was not her husband's. But either way, there was definitely some confusion during that time as to who the child belonged to because she wasn't sure. Oh, that's definitely a hard secret to keep your entire life. Oh, yeah. As time progressed, their relationship became more involved they both felt like they were soulmates to each other and they didn't want this relationship to end. But they also knew that they couldn't have this relationship based upon the fact that they were both married. 
they did share that information with each other. Did Jessica like her husband? She did. She shows me that she had a lot of respect for him based upon his work. However, she was really the bread maker in the family. She didn't really give him those details, though. What do you mean by that? It was a very rare occasion for women to have a job, let alone a high-paying job. And obviously, she was a spy, so she claimed to have had a job in connection to her family. I believe it was some sort of business to hide what they really did. So it was like a business front. And from the sounds of it, this business ceased to exist. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. Anyways, I see that Charlie, which by the way, I do not believe that is his real biological name. I think that was the name that he was given with his like fake identification. But anyways, I think his real name was Barry. I also feel like there was some sort of identity to this man, but he doesn't really identify to Barry. He felt like Barry was a boring name. He actually much rather his Charlie name. He also shows me he had fallen completely head over heels in love with her beauty, her coolness. She was very smart, very breezy, nothing like he had ever had before. And due to that, he decided to make a choice he instantly regretted. What was that choice? What does he regret? He decided to share his deepest, darkest secret that he's not allowed to share with anyone. He told her he was a spy. And of course, she laughed it off and did not believe him. And then as time progressed, she sat and thought about it and realized that he was what he said he was. And I believe it broke her heart because she had a duty and had to share this with her family. She did not think about keeping this secret. She did love him, but she also knew she had bigger responsibility to her country. So it became a no brainer for her. Did she ever share her job with him? No, and he didn't care. I personally don't believe he would have turned on her if it was the other way around. At least that's what he shows me. Well, I can only imagine what comes next. She had to tell her family when it happened, and obviously her family was not pleased with her decisions, but also respected the fact that she came forward and told them all about it. I don't believe she told them she was pregnant, though. They asked her if she needed them to take care of him or if she would be doing it on her own. Now, she practically begged them because, honestly, they wanted to go in and kill him, but she wanted to do it more of like a graceful way. I do believe they provided her poison and she accepted. Apparently, it was very difficult for her, but she felt it was the best option. She knew that if she allowed them to kill him, that there would be... A bloody mess, an interrogation. His limbs may get cut off, fingers cut off. It would have been sick and she couldn't fathom that. She did inform her family that she did not get any information from him or that he was trying to attack them, but just trying to find out information so they let it be. Man, I feel for the guy. That's tough. I know. She was told when and where and how long she had, and from what it looks like, she had a very small window to get this done. She decided she wanted to have one more romantic evening with him, and from what I gather, she told him she wanted to make a special meal for him. I believe it was, you know, dinner, and I feel like there was a very little amount of food, but I also believe that there was a lot of alcohol involved, which I don't necessarily know was allowed at that point, but definitely alcohol in their system. 
I don't feel like they spent too much time eating because they were making love. I also see that after they were done making love, she was poisoning him. And as soon as she poisoned him, which I think she did in a, a drink, I think one of his beverages, she shows me she had a lot of hesitation in doing so. But she also knew she had to. She did tell him how much she loved him. She did show him. He was the best thing that ever walked into her life. And she's sorry that she had to do this. She informed him that she poisoned him because she worked for the organization as well. And he was pretty stunned. Almost as if he didn't believe her. He kind of laughed it off a bit. Until the poison ran through his body. From what he shows me, they have a little like side joke. That he would have rathered her shot him in the head because the poison was completely uncomfortable, slow death. He did not enjoy that aspect of it. After he had died, which by the way, she did say she was sorry over and over and over again. She only had approximately an hour until the people were coming to obtain his body. And she was supposed to change him into something different. This is where she screwed up a bit. She did remove all the tags from the outfit, but also seeing that she did not mean to leave a book reference in his pocket because that was something else. So whose suit is that then? Yeah, from what I gather, one of the previous people they had to kill. They don't normally leave the bodies out. Usually they get rid of them. But this particular situation, they were trying to warn the USA, like, we know you're watching, but I honestly don't even think she knows who suit that belonged to. So with this book connection, was it just like an eerie omen thing? Yeah, pretty much. But also evidence attaching to the case that was accidentally left. And due to the situation, she was let go of her job because her family felt her to be a liability. They were afraid that something would come up. So from what she shows me, that's basically what happened she wanted to leave anyway because she had made the ultimate sacrifice she felt she didn't have to make any more sacrifices and his death pretty much broke her and although she continued to carry on with her life she was pretty unhappy and she would have to live with unhappiness for the rest of her lifetime i mean it makes sense to me and she also never told anyone about this never ever she took the secret to her grave and from what she shows me it was due to her little indiscretions. It was first part of the downfall of their organization. And soon after, it actually ended up taking the entire organization down and disbanding. Well, it looks like she was the glue that kind of held that organization together. I believe she definitely was the heart and did hold that together. Now, her daughter said that she had lied about not knowing him. Is there anything else she would like to talk about? from that situation like did she want to share any details with her daughter she definitely wanted to share everything with her daughter but she was simply sworn to secrecy and accidentally gave her that information and not for any other reason but she was trying to save her daughter's life she was afraid that her daughter would be killed if she knew anything so she left her in the dark even to her dying day well all right let's get back to charlie now, was that his suitcase that they found at the train station? It definitely was his suitcase. I think it was like not necessarily checked in. I think that they're the ones who had placed it there. There were a lot of items taken out of there, though. From what I gather, there was money as well. Things were strategically placed in there, too. 
There was a lot of information with like a journal, perhaps a little black book with phone numbers as well that was removed. It was also left there specifically so that they could find it and lead it to absolutely nothing. But also they wanted to make it seem as though the suit was his by putting those little items in there as well to really just connect everything. Do we know what any of the codes are that they found, what they mean? Some sort of Morse code, but they only use this particular brand in military and federal government. And he told me that one way or another, he still will not give those secrets out because some of those things are still used to this day, even if it's just to decipher another code. Well, when it comes to the bus ticket, was that strategically placed as well? Absolutely. It was so that they could lead to the suitcase. All right. So obviously she killed him. Now the two of them are together. So what's the story? From what she shows me and from what he shows me, they are definitely together because they are soulmates. And although he wasn't happy with it, he understood where she was coming from. He no longer has anger towards her. They were able to get past it pretty easily I don't feel like it was even an issue. Even though she carried that guilt for the rest of her life, he felt as though that was punishment enough for her. I mean, I guess so. Is there anything else that either of them want to share? Yes. They have not crossed over. He has not crossed over. But it looks like both of them together just want to hang out. Well, why is that? He wanted to tell a story. He specifically asked me to make sure that this episode was available to everyone so that everyone can hear it, including his family, his kids. I think they're still alive. I don't necessarily think he was waiting for me, but perhaps he just wanted his story out there in some sort of manner. And from what it looks like, he's pretty pleased with this information. There are lots of secrets and he does plan to keep some of them, but it looks like he can finally cross over. He also wanted to be with his beautiful soulmate again, so he was waiting for her first, and then of course telling his story second. I think he's ready to cross over now. It's been a long time coming, and I think they're on their way. <laughs> I think she's been waiting to cross over for a while now, but this is a special moment for both of them. Well, it must feel good to help them. Certainly does. I asked them what exactly they wanted, and this was it. So they already are on their way, almost to like a second honeymoon, even though they didn't necessarily get married, but it looks like they're married up there. Definitely an unexpected twist. Definitely. All right, guys, it's your turn. I want you guys to let us know in the comment section if you picked up on the theme for this particular month. Yes, go back and listen to all the episodes this month and see if you can figure it out just based upon your memory, too. Now, before we let you guys go for the evening, I did want to mention something about my wonderful wife as we are picking out these episodes, even before we started to dive into them. When we went to do this particular episode right away, Liz was like, he was murdered by a woman with poison before we even looked into any of these details. And when everything came to flourish, I was just stunned because she barely even got the opportunity. She just like looked at a picture of his face and was like, yes, he was killed by a woman, poison. And I was like, holy crap. Now she's been getting stronger and stronger with her abilities, which I commend her for that every time we do these cases. Aw, I really appreciate that acknowledgement. 
And yes, it can be scary, creepy sometimes, even for me. I love you for always being my biggest support. My biggest fan. Speaking of fan, next week, we will have two episodes for you guys. And the first one is going to be on our wedding anniversary, a.k.a. Halloween. And then we'll be dropping our first episode of November. So make sure to listen in twice this week to get your very special bonus. Now, due to it being our anniversary, we will not be going live on this week. But we will be back the following week. So make sure to enjoy each one of these episodes. And until next time, guys, stay freaked out.